So John's Gospel, John chapter 1, if you would turn there in your Bibles, John 1. Now, if you came to the second service last week, um, you are aware of the fact that we did not finish the text uh, because I got a little sidetracked there. So hopefully you did your own reading and you read uh, the remainder of our text yesterday and you saw how men were sent to John the Baptist and they were sent with the question, who are you? And so he um, said emphatically, well, I'm, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. And so then the follow-up question was then, who are you? And really the meaning behind that is, who gives you the authority? What authority do you have to do the things you're doing? And we saw that his authority was based upon what Isaiah the prophet had written concerning him, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So our text today begins in verse 29 as we continue through our study of John chapter uh, 1. It says, the next day, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. And Father, we pray that as we look at these few verses this morning, Lord, as we always ask that you would give us life application, that you would teach us from this text, Lord, Father, help us not to approach this portion of your word or really any portion of your word is, is mere uh, history. It is speaking. It is recording a historical uh, uh, you know, account. But Lord, we know that your word is alive and there is always application for your people. So teach us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I opened up the first service and I was kind of bemoaning a little bit um, times past. You know, I, I grew up in the, my, kind of my teenage years were in the 70s in Southern California. And to be honest, I wouldn't have wanted to live anyplace else. Um, I, I loved living in Southern California. I loved living in San Diego. Uh, I loved surfing. That was kind of the thing that my sister and I did. We were always in the water. My sister was on the swim team, and, and we surfed, and she competed and, and uh, surf contest and everything. And we just kind of loved the whole Southern California vibe, if you will. But let me tell you a, a, just a little something about uh, Southern California. That's all I could speak from experience. Uh, back in the 70s, you know that some of the teachers, pastors that we're aware of today, men like Greg Laurie and Raul Reese. Raul Reese pastors at Calvary Chapel in Diamond Bar, California. Men like these that are 
fairly well known, at least in the Calvary Chapel movement, that many of these men, as young men, were preaching the gospel on high school campuses. That seems unbelievable by today's standards. Today's standards, there is an agenda, and the agenda is surely not <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at that time, you could go on to campus, you could go on during a lunch break, or you know, depending upon how the school schedule was set up. At my high school, uh, we had the strangest schedule. We were on a six-day schedule. We didn't go to school for six days. We went to school for five days, Monday through Friday. But it was a six-day schedule that was constantly changing. And you had a class, and then you had free time, and then maybe another class, and a, maybe another big block of free time. That to say there were always students on campus hanging out just there. And it was a great opportunity for those who... Uh, had the message of the gospel to come and to bring it and to preach it at the school. It was many years later after um, I had graduated from Poway High School and, and um, you know, that was a, a thing of the past for me. I never looked back after graduating from Poway High, you know. But I remember listening to James Dobson and James Dobson had some guests on his show, and they were talking about this revival that was breaking out on the campus of Poway High School. And I was so blown away that this work of God was happening on the campus that I went to school, well, when I went to school, you know, uh, that it was happening there. God is always at work. But I have to say that there are many more obstacles today <laughs> than there has been in the past. Well, how does that tie into our text? Well, I was thinking of how when you read the scriptures, sometimes do you get the impression that, that no one worked and everyone just kind of hung out and, you know, hey, we hear that there's this uh, prophet, you know, out in the wilderness. Uh, he's baptizing people. He looks like Elijah. He dresses like Elijah. He eats locusts and wild honey, let's go out and see this guy, you know. And you kind of get the impression that people just had, you know, the freedom to go out and do whatever they want. And I think that they did have a lot more freedom than we do today. Sadly, we have become trapped. And there's, you know, I'm just pointing out the obvious. There's nothing we could really do about it, but we're on this, this, this wheel, you know, making money. You work your 40-plus hours, and it's making money, and, and that's the goal. And you, you can live your whole life making money. And you come to the end of your life, and you realize, well, money isn't where it's at. <laughs> money isn't bringing me the happiness that I want. There must be more. And I think that when you look at the scriptures, it's important to notice that the scriptures in different places in the New Testament it makes it clear that these things happen for such a time as this. Everything had to be in place. The culture, the time, the fact that Rome was reigning in Israel, all of these things were important factors. Listen, if Rome was not reigning, if Rome, Roman soldiers, if Rome was not in uh, Judea, in Israel, Jesus never would have been crucified. And yet the scriptures spoke of the fact that he'd be crucified. So John, he shows up, his mission, he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Isaiah spoke of him, Malachi spoke of him. 
Our text begins with, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You'll note that it doesn't say sins, it says sin. You'll note that it doesn't say Israel, but the world. I point that out, guys, because many times as Christians, when we're reading the scriptures, we should ask questions. I mean, we should just kind of stop and use the noggins that the Lord has given us and kind of think through the text, you know, and, and, and think of the fact that, that uh, you know, this was happening is, is in Israel. It was happening at a specific time in Israel's history. Of course, the Messiah, he had been prophesied about. He was coming. He was on his way. All of these things were going to take place, just as the scripture said that they would. And John, he's on the scene, and he sees Jesus, and he says, behold. Now, in our modern vernacular, what would we say? Look, look out there. See, I got your attention, so many of you. You're already good. But it, it, that's what it means. It speaks of surprise. What? Look. And then it invites others to look upon. So John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John, uh, John the author, not John the Baptist, but John the author of this uh, gospel account. You remember, guys, that he had a similar thing happen to him. Remember when John was caught up to heaven and he was told about the lion of the tribe of Judah? Behold, John. And John turns and he looks. And what does he see? Do you guys remember? He sees a lamb as if it had been slain. He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. So I wonder if John, the beloved, as he's recording these words of Jesus, or, I'm, I'm sorry, of John the Baptist concerning Jesus. I wonder if, 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 if he thought about his own experience, you know, when he was caught up to heaven. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, guys, it's interesting to consider whether or not John thought about what he was saying. I want you to follow me with this. You might be, of course he thought about it. Have you ever said something that you were surprised those words came out of your mouth? Have you ever, now, now that could be a negative thing, <laughs> but you know, oh gosh, where, where did that come from? But on a positive, you know, positive side of things, have you ever been sharing the gospel with somebody and then you start speaking and you're blown away by the words that are coming out of your mouth and you come away from the situation and you say to yourself or say to someone else, I didn't know that I knew those things. I can't even believe that I said that. I can't believe that I shared that verse. I mean, I don't, I don't even know that I knew that verse. And, and you realize that this is something that the Lord has put in your mouth, upon your heart, you're speaking these things, and you didn't even give any forethought to what you were thinking or what you were saying. I wonder if John, when he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, behold the Lamb of God, he uses that phrase, the Lamb of God, which would have been familiar for the Jews. He's speaking to Jews in Israel. That would have been a familiar picture for them, Lamb of God. But I wonder if he thought about it. 
Or I wonder if the words just kind of came out. And I wonder if as the words were coming out that he was surprised that he used that title. Now, of course, we don't know, but I wonder about that. What I'm trying to do, guys, is trying to stimulate your mind, that we might stimulate our minds when we're reading the scriptures, because here's the thing. Faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. Faith does not come. It's not going to come by experiences. It's not going to come by going to this school or that school or this church or that church. It's going to come. Real, genuine faith, biblical faith, is going to come by spending time in the Word, abiding in the Word, believing the Word, applying the Word to your life. This is so important because none of us know what's coming tomorrow. And I'm telling you that the Lord wants us to be equipped for whatever may come tomorrow or an hour from now. And he'll equip us through his word. And I also always emphasize this because I know that there are many people who will go to church all of their lives. There are many young people that go to church because their parents make them go to church. And boy, as soon as they're able, they're out of there, you know. They're not going back to that. That was my story. I could not wait You know, once I was of age, I'm never going back to that church. For me, it was the Catholic church. I'm never going back to that church ever again. And and I didn't (laughs) until years later visiting my parents. It was funny. We went to a mass with my parents. and, um, And it was like I, in my mind, I knew exactly... Each step, you know, the ringing of the bell, you know, you just got it was it's in your mind because I had done it so often as a child. But the fact of the matter is, is that our young people and we ourselves, we need to be people of the word. And as we're reading the word, our faith is going to be increased because we're going to see that the word always complements the word. So John spoke these things. He says, the Lamb of God and the people of Israel surely knew about sacrificial lambs, didn't they? The children of Israel knew that every Passover, that every family would have to take a little lamb, raise that little lamb, keep that little lamb in their house. You think of this, guys. Think of when your um, goldfish dies and your child is devastated. Could you imagine raising a lamb for for the sole purpose of taking that lamb to the... (laughs) A temple so that it could be offered to Yahweh. We think so differently now. People get uptight when you, you know, eat beef. You know, that will be outlawed soon. But, um, but it's just a completely different mindset. But for the Jews, for the Hebrew people, they understood the sacrificial lamb. In fact, Josephus, he was a Hebrew uh, historian, Jewish historian. And uh, he tells us of of one particular account that at Passover there was some 250,000 lambs that were offered on Pentecost. Think of that. Guys, think of these things when you're thinking through the Bible, when you're reading the Bible. As I mentioned that, 250,000 lambs. You know, the lambs just, they don't kind of like crawl up on the altar and go, just give up the ghost. They're slaughtered. Gross. I think that we don't think through the Bible enough. 
We think of the priest. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to be a priest in the Old Testament, you know? Yes, the priest with their white linen garments on, working at the altar there. Their garments covered with blood. Why did they have the basin of water to clean themselves from all the blood? The point is, is that the Lord gives us a picture in the Bible from the very beginning. I mean, really, from the Garden of Eden forward, he gives us a picture that sin is costly. <coughs> oh, no. Sin is costly. I lost my voice like that one time. Remember, Nate? <coughs> and then Nate had to come up and finish. He had no idea what we were going. <clears throat> okay. Where was I? <laughs> Sin is costly. Thank you. Sin is costly. This was something that was understood by the Jewish people. Sin is costly. Sin means something dies. Sin is costly. <clears throat> He says, behold the Lamb of God. He's speaking of a man. They turn and they see a man. They see Jesus. Guys, do you ever consider? Oh, no. <coughs> I don't know what that is. I might. Um, do you? Yeah. I see colors. No, sorry. Wouldn't that be horrible? By my own son-in-law. <clears throat> you know what? I, I think, can you? I'm sorry, but I, I can't. Um, <clears throat> I think, well, hold on. So much drama. See, church can be entertaining, can it do? Father, we pray that you would touch Pastor yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. All right. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes one who is preferred or of higher rank. He's preferred before me, for he was before me. You know, you look at this and you say, I think I touched on this last week, he was before me. This is the second time we read this in John, John's gospel. John the Baptist says he was before me. And yet we look and we say, well, no, that's not true. Chronologically, John was born before Jesus. John was at least six months older than Jesus. We know this from the gospel of Luke that when Mary found that she was with child, the very first place she went was to Elizabeth, her relative, because she was the only one in the world who would understand what was happening to her. And remember when she walked into the room and the baby leapt within her and he was filled with the Holy Spirit at that point in time? John, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
You think of the lambs that were offered at Passover. You think of the lambs that were offered at the altar every day. Every day, two, two lambs every day. You think of all the sacrificial lambs that were brought for personal sacrifice day after day. Those lambs were brought by men, <laughs> given to men, the priest, to cover a man's sin. And this happened over and over and over again. And on this day, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb. He is the Lamb of God. He is a sacrificial offering. As we saw in the first chapter, Jesus is God. Jesus is not just a mere man. Jesus is God. God says, listen, sin is so serious. And there's not a lamb. There's not an oxen. There's not, there's not a dove. There's not a turtle dove. There's not the blood of an animal that's ever been born, that's ever been created, that could take away sin. And he remedies his, the, the problem. And the problem is, is that the perfect, the sinless one needs to come and die for the sin of the world. And that's why Jesus came. I, I hope that we never get accustomed to this. I, I hope that this does not become dead orthodoxy. It's just doctrine. I know this. I understand this. This is what it says. It needs to mean something to us. It, it, means to, it needs to be alive to us. Last week, you know, I, I didn't finish our text because I really got kind of hung up, not in a bad way. I think it was a, 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 a God way, you know, on grace. And, um, and I was moved emotionally last week. And, and uh, you know, for some of you, if you say, oh, that's silly, you know, I don't like it when a grown man is moved about things like that. Listen, it doesn't move you unless it's affected your own life. If you haven't experienced personally the grace of God, then the grace of God is just a theory or just a doctrine. It's just some truth of the Bible, but it really doesn't mean anything to you personally. But if you've experienced it, then you say, no, this is real. I know it's real. I've experienced this very thing in my own life. And for the children of Israel, as they look and they're gazing upon this man, you wonder what they were thinking. You wonder what was going through their mind. Now, next week, as we continue, we'll see that two of John's disciples heard John say this. I don't know if he repeated himself. It seems that he did, repeated the same thing, or at least, behold the Lamb of God. And two of his own disciples said, see you, John. We're going to go follow Jesus, the one you said is the Lamb of God. Guys, John, the beloved, the author of John's gospel, tells us why John the Baptist came to baptize. He came to baptize that, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, look at verse 31, he says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. John says, this was the purpose of my life. Guys, I kind of challenged the first service at, at the end of the service. I said, you know, could you imagine if you were born for one specific purpose? 
you lived your whole life, you know, you had your birthdays and you achieved things and, and all of this, but really, from God's perspective, you lived your entire life for one purpose. Maybe that one purpose was to lead one person to Christ, and not just a, you know, a person in, in, you know, just kind of out there, but one specific person that you were born and you had the job you had and you lived in the community you lived in and you 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 were living in the economic bracket that you were living in. Everything was set up because the Lord had a purpose for your life and that purpose was that you would share the gospel with this one person. You guys ever hear that chain? I, I don't remember it by heart, so I'm not going to try to repeat it, but it was kind of this chain of event events that, you know, one person shares the gospel uh, with um, uh, this evangelist. I think it was, uh, was it Billy Sunday or what was his name? Billy? You know, Billy Sunday, they call him the acrobatic uh, evangelist because he's always jumping around, but he preached the gospel. And then he preached the gospel to another, uh, was it D.L. Moody? Or Anyway, the sequence are out, but it was like uh, Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, uh, Billy Graham, and it was like they were all kind of this in this chain, um, one sharing the gospel with another, another, another. And, and you look at this and you say, John the Baptist, what do we know about his life? We know that he said, um, I must decrease, he must increase. We know that. We know that historically, um, when he was done with his mission, what was his mission? baptized Jesus apparently I mean he continued to baptize people as we'll see as we continue on in John's gospel account but but once he revealed Jesus to Israel um, through his baptism that he was arrested remember he was taken into custody you know what I love about John the Baptist is that he was a man he wasn't afraid to speak the truth and remember he spoke out about Herod, having his brother's wife, Philip's wife, says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias was offended by that. And so she wanted to eliminate John. But of course, she was unable to until she set up this whole grand plan. And then she was successful. They decapitated John. His disciples, John's disciples came, retrieved his body, uh, not his head, apparently, but retrieved his body and, and, and buried him. And you look at that and you say, how tragic. John the Baptist, he lives his life. His parents are old people. We know that from the Gospel of Luke. His mother was barren all of her life. Her, her, his father was an old man, a priest. I mean, he was well beyond, you know, the age of, you know, you know, I don't think they played ball together or anything like that out in the front lawn. And there's a good chance that, that his parents died when he was fairly young. Who raised John? Was John a loner? I'm asking questions that we don't have the answers to, but I'm just simply wondering, what kind of life did John live? It's believed that John lived with the, is it the Essenes? Is that the right term? Essenes. Essenes, and they lived out by the Dead Sea, um, kind of where Masada is, where Herod's fortress was and everything. Of course, that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and it's believed that John the Baptist lived with them. I wonder, did he go there as a boy? 
Was he a boy that went into this kind of monastery type of setting and raised by these men? And then finally he goes out on his own because the Lord speaks to him. God speaks to him and says, John, I'm going to send you out to baptize people, call people to repentance. And he did, didn't he? He calls people to repentance and people come out to him. Tax collectors, what should we do? Stop stealing from people. Take only the tax that you're supposed to take. Stop stealing from people. And the military would come out. What should we do? Stop intimidating people. Don't treat people like that. And John was very specific to different groups, and he was calling people to repentance. He was calling people to acknowledge the fact that we've got a problem. Just because we're children of Israel, just because we're Jews, because we're Hebrews, it does not mean that we do not have a major problem, and that major problem is incurable. It's sin. It's eternal. And God's judgment is upon us. And all of the offerings that were ever offered at the temple could not take away one sin. In fact, the Bible never says that the offerings at the temple ever took away one sin. Not one sin was taken away. They were covered. It's almost as if you just kind of throw something over it, you know. We're not going to deal with this right now. This is sufficient for you right now, but one is coming, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is coming, and when he comes, he will remove the penalty of sin. He will remove the bondage of sin. And this is what Christ did. Christ comes upon the scene. This was his day, his day to be baptized, and you wonder, why in the world would Jesus be baptized by John the Baptist? He was the sinless one. It's almost like, it reminds me, you know in the scriptures when, when it says that Pilate examined Jesus? Again, we kind of read that and we say, I mean, what does that even mean? Did he look at him and go, hmm, no. Examine means they examined by scourging. They beat the truth out of you. And they would beat the victim that's, that's uh, you know, before the Roman authority so that the victim would confess. If you confessed, oh, 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 wait, wait, I did this as well, you know, they might go a little easy on you. But do you think of Jesus? He had nothing to confess. Do you think they went lighter on Jesus or more on Jesus? Come on, confess that you're a liar. And just keep beating him and beating him and beating him. I mean, when you look at the scriptures, I think that there are so many things there that just cause our hearts to to be filled with sorrow when we consider the things that Jesus went through for our sake. Jesus, it was his day. He comes upon the scene. It, it need be. Remember, John protested. We see this in the other gospel accounts. I need to be baptized by you, and, and you've come to be baptized by me? It need be, Jesus says. It need be. To fulfill all righteousness, Matthew chapter 10 tells us. It need be. Why in the world was Jesus baptized by John the Baptist? Well, I think that it gave credibility to John's ministry. Don't you think that that would give credibility? And I think that it spoke of many things. You know, Jesus was obviously identifying with sinful humanity. Guys, this should blow our minds that God, 
eternal God outside of time takes on the, a body of a human being, the incarnation. I mean, this is, this is what we looked at in the first part of chapter 1. And he comes to the earth and he lives among us. He lives among humanity. And in humanity, they don't understand him. Some are admired by him. Others hate him because of the things he said, the things he did. Most were probably stumbled by Jesus most of the time because, you know, hey, if he didn't say something that stumbled you today, give it some time. He'll say something that's going to bother you. You're going to find some reason to dislike him. And Jesus... He comes out to be baptized. I think that it's worth noting, according to the Lord's own words, that the baptism was kind of a foreshadow of the baptism that he would undergo on the cross. Guys, do you remember you say, that's not the right terminology. That doesn't fit. You're stretching. No, I'll give you the verse. Remember, Jesus spoke about, I have a cup to drink. Remember the cup? We see this symbol, this picture in the Old Testament, a cup to drink. It's something I need to partake of. Jesus said in um, Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. When he's speaking of another water baptism, he's speaking of the baptism of fire. He's speaking of the baptism of God's wrath as he hung upon the cross. I mean, this is just so mind-blowing when you consider what Jesus did. Behold the Son of Man who comes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the true light. Behold the Word. Behold, I mean... All of these titles, remember seven titles for Jesus in the first chapter of John? Jesus comes upon the scene. And John says twice, I did not know him. I did not know him. I did not know him. In verse 33, he says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So apparently, guys, whether or not John knew Jesus, I mean, they were relatives. They lived about 100 miles away from each other. I mean, if, if, if uh, according to where his mother and father lived, and of course, Mary lived in Nazareth. It was about a four to five day journey. I don't think that they got together much for sleepovers or anything like that when they were kids. But I think that what John was saying, I did not know that he was the Messiah. That there was a sign. He who sent me to baptize, he told me, when you see, now you're going to be baptizing people, John. There are many men that are going to come out to you. Many men are going to come out into the water and you baptize them. You baptize them unto repentance. You baptize them so that they might be thinking about their sinful state, their sinful condition. I mean, it leaves them hopeless because what do we do with the sin, you know? But you baptize them, John. But John, there's going to be one whom you baptize. And you're going to see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. 
and landing upon him or lighting upon him, some of the other gospel writers write, and remaining upon him. This is the one. I think that's what John was saying, don't you? I didn't know him, but I know him now. Why? Because he who sent me to baptize showed me what to watch for, a sign to watch for. You know, guys, we're living in the last days. And, you know, a lot of people, they have little interest in Bible prophecy, but Bible prophecy is, is just a sign. Bible prophecy is, is the Lord's way of saying, now, I want you to know where you're living in, in, in human history. I want you to know how close you are to uh, my return. I want you to recognize here some signs to watch for. And if we're paying attention, we'll say, boy, we're close. We're very close. The Lord told us to watch for these things, and we're watching and we're seeing these things happening before our very eyes. I think of what happened to Jesus, and of course, it's so beautiful, you know, Jesus, Jesus who is God in the flesh, Jesus is, who is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus who is, is God, but he's also fully man. You know, that's important to understand because the Gnostics say, no, Jesus was like a phantom, you know, he's almost like a ghost. When Jesus would walk along the Sea of Galilee, there would be, you know, the 12 uh, sets of, of footprints from his disciples, but he wouldn't leave a set of footprints because, and they would just kind of play with this thing. And of course, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. Guys, listen, there's a reason why the Bible emphasizes things. There's a reason why John, the beloved, says, we have seen him, we have touched him, we have gazed upon him, we have beheld him, we have, you know, I mean, he keeps describing, he's saying, the Gnostics are wrong, the Gnostics are liars. We were there. He was fully man and God. Say, how could this be? It could only be <laughs> with the Lord. But I look at this and I think of how what Jesus experienced, in a sense, is what we experience as Christians. We place our faith in Christ, and the Bible says that we have been endowed with the Holy Spirit. Do you ever just stop and think about that, guys? It seems so hard. You say, well, I don't believe it. I can't see the Spirit. Well, the Lord is the one who told us we can't see the Spirit. We'll see that when we get into chapter 3, and, and Jesus is talking to a, the religious you know, Pharisee, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it, will, where it will. You can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But it's there. You could feel the, the, the movement of the wind. You can't see the wind, but you could feel the movement of the wind. So it is with the Spirit of God. And anyone who's truly been born again, born of the Spirit of God, knows that they've been born of the Spirit of God. It's that, that inner, you know, testimony. I know. I know that I know. I, I sense the presence of the Lord. It's not like the Mormons, you know, I have a, you know, whatever in my bosom type of thing. But it is, it is the fruit of a life that's been saved <laughs> and that's being sanctified by the Lord himself. When we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon us, or comes in us, excuse me. 
Do you remember when Jesus, we'll see it in John's gospel. In fact, guys, I want you to pay attention as you're going through John's gospel on your own, as you're reading through it, all the references to the Holy Spirit. Guys, these things are not written, you know, by men just so we could, oh, that's interesting. I like the way he highlighted that or this. They are inspired by the Spirit of God. And so the Holy Spirit, right here, we're seeing, you know, if you will, first mention of the Holy Spirit in the, in the Gospel of John, and yet we're going to see him referred to over and over and over again. The dependence upon the Spirit to live the Christian life. Without the Spirit of God, being a follower of Jesus is absolutely impossible. This is why a lot of people, they deceive themselves in thinking, I tried Christianity, you know, I tried following Jesus. Do you know you can't try following Jesus? It's absolutely impossible. We can only follow Jesus by the power of the Spirit of God within us. The wonderful thing is, you don't need great faith to believe in Jesus. It could be the smallest (laughs) measure of faith. But I'll tell you, once you believe, if you truly believed, the Lord will fan that, that faith into a flame. But the Spirit of God, Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. Remember that, guys? Again, these are words. Sometimes I think that as Christians, we just read words. It's just words. But you have to put yourself in their sandals. Jesus has just said, I'm going away. I'm leaving. I've been telling you, I've been trying to communicate to you that we're going up to Jerusalem. We're here. We're in Jerusalem that they will hand me over to the Gentiles and that I'll be crucified. And on the third day, I'll be raised again. I've been telling you that. Here it is. This is it. Man, this is our last night together. And not one of you will remain with me. All of you will scatter. Remember that? Peter said, not me. Peter, he didn't think much of his fellow, you know, (laughs) disciples. He said, they may, but I won't. And Peter did. And Peter wept bitterly. Again, guys, you just, man, you gotta, you gotta, when you're reading the scriptures, if you're a child of God, you have the spirit of the living God within you, you gotta feel what you're reading, you gotta, you gotta listen. You gotta read it. You gotta think, man. I, I've denied the Lord, and, and oh gosh, I can't imagine what Peter must have felt, and what a loser he must have felt like, you know, to do this, and not only to do this thing, but to brag and to boast as if he would never ever do this, and he did it in such a big way. And your heart should go out to him and say, "This is so sad," but your your mind should be stimulating to say, but the Lord told him that this would happen. The story's not over. His failure does not mean the end for him. I can't wait to get to the end of the book. I can't wait to get to the end of the, the gospel account to see what happens to Peter. You see what I'm saying? It is hope. It is hope. But I think of Jesus saying to them, 
I'm going away. He says, but I pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth. He's the spirit of truth. He's not a spirit of a lie. I, I, I've been so disturbed over the years, you know, these, these so-called revivals that come into the church. They come and they go. They come and they go. They come and they go. Let me tell you about a revival. A genuine revival of God is always based upon the word of God. Yes, the spirit of God is moving, but it's never just signs and wonders. It's always honoring the word of God. And when you have so-called revivals that do not honor the word of God, like the Toronto Revival or the Brownsville Revival. Brownsville was probably more true to keeping the word than some of these other ones, or the Lakewood Revival or the Laughing Revival. And you look at these things, and, and the world looks on and they say, you Christians, man, you guys are loony. It's because these people are not honoring the word of God. They believe that their leaders are speaking new revelation. It doesn't matter what the old revelation says. What they speak is the new revelation. Now, this is the truth. But I'll tell you, any genuine movement of God will always honor the word of God. Always. It will always test the experience with the word of God. I... Over the years, because it's kind of gone now, you know, this is, these things, they're like fads, you know, they come and they go. But over the years, I would get ang people angry with me, you know, when I'd speak up out about the laughing revival. And people would say, well, I experienced that. So therefore, if I experience something that's real, I experience that. How could you speak against that? Oh, be careful, Dan, you know, you're speaking, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're speaking against the Holy Spirit. No, no. This is a demonic work. This isn't a work of the Spirit. I think that too many of us Christians, we look foolish because we do not do our due diligence. I was watching a little clip the other day. It was a pro-life rally. A fellow was carrying a sign. Someone came up and they said, is God pro-life? And the guy carrying the sign said, yes, of course God's pro-life. And the guy, guy said, then why did God destroy every man, woman, and uh, uh, child in the flood? And the guy, had, he had no response. He said, he said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And I thought, oh, man. See, you don't know the word of God, so you don't know how to respond biblically and, 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 and you just, you know, there, there's, there's hope here. There's a message, there's judgment, but there's hope and there's grace. And, and you're missing the, you know, the main point of it. And many times Christians, you know, we do this. I think of before I was a Christian and I was kind of dabbling in all this new age, you know, this Eastern mysticism, you know, the, the gurus and all of this type of stuff. And, and I just, and I would think to myself, you know, I experienced more kind of supernatural type stuff. It was demonic, but supernatural type of stuff when I was involved in that than I have as a Christian. Because I test things with the word of God now. I don't just, you know, say, oh, that was a cool experience. 
And I would try to tell Christians that were caught up in this whole holy laughter thing. I said, who's copying who? What do you mean? I said, would you just do your due diligence and go online and look at the gurus that are stimulating the third eye and getting people to laugh hysterically? Who's copying who? Because the church wasn't doing this 2,000 years ago. The church wasn't doing this 50 years ago. The time frame in which I'm speaking, the church wasn't doing this 10 years ago or five years ago. The church is copying the devil. And they would get so offended, and I would just say, guys, what's at stake? We have the truth of the gospel. And if we don't know how to handle the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God, we will, we will, people will just discredit us because they'll say, these people are ignorant. They don't, you know, they, you know, this is happening over here. How do you explain that? And you could become like the quiet guy, you know, I don't want to talk to you anymore. So we need to test things. We have the spirit of God. He is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's what Jesus said. I'm done. Mario, come up. Do you remember the night that Jesus was resurrected? The night that he was resurrected? This is, um, what, 50 days before the day of Pentecost. You guys know what happened on Pentecost, of course. But this was 50 days before that. Jesus appears in the room where his disciples are. They're scared. They're hiding. Who could blame them? You know, they, they, they weren't there to witness what had happened to Jesus. I mean, at least the crucifixion. They, they did flee just as Jesus said they would. But they surely knew the gory details. And Jesus appears. He says, it is I. Put your hand here, touch me. I'm not a phantom. The Gnostics will tell all sorts of lies about me later, but you can see yourself. I'm, I'm here physically with you. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. You say, why did he do that? It's dramatic. No, no, no. It's the, it's, Spirit, wind, it's the exact same word in the Hebrew and the Greek. It's the same word. It's wind. You see what I mean? If, if we just do a little bit of study, the word of God comes alive to us because then we say, oh, Lord. It wasn't like you were just kind of throwing out, you know, kind of the, like the gurus would do, this philosophical stuff that no one really knows what you're talking about because it's so heady and everything. No, you're speaking of things that you've already spoke of in your word. Ruha. Panua. You can't even say the words without breathing, you know. Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, and they receive the Holy Spirit. But what did he say? Now, tarry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes upon you. You guys know what happened. 120 of them up in the upper room. They're waiting for the promise of the Father. John was the first to tell them about the promise of the Father. 
I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. Do you see, guys? Guys, listen. It's not these little, you know, disconnected things. Everything is connected. And as we see it, it becomes this beautiful, beautiful picture. Tracy, my wife, she loves making puzzles. She's always trying to, she's like, Danny, come over here. Come on and do something. And I'll just come over and say, oh, that's nice. But she always says to me, it stimulates the mind. You know, you want to keep your mind sharp. And I said, you keep your mind sharp. I'm going to go watch TV or something, you know. But she's so good at puzzles now. I mean, it doesn't take her long at all, you know. Now it's kind of fun to time her. She'll say, okay, I'm starting now, you know, and, and then she'll make the puzzle. But you know how puzzles are. You have all these pieces that are disconnected. Well, there's a similar color here and maybe some similar color here and over here and this over there and everything. And then once you put all the pieces together, you have this beautiful picture. And that's what she enjoys at the end. She always says, come over and look at this picture. Doesn't this remind you of, every puzzle she does reminds her of some place that she's been in her life. She finds such pleasure in it. And that's how the word of God is meant to be. Not disconnected, not here, there, over there. Oh, this is interesting. I looked at this verse today, but it's all connected. And when you see it all together, you read it all together, it makes sense. Without all those lambs being sacrificed on Pentecost and every day of the week in Jerusalem at the tabernacle or the temple that was built, if that never happened, the cross would make no sense at all. We understand that. So now we look at the Old Testament. We don't look at it and say, well, we're under these things. I need to find a lamb to sacrifice, you know. No, 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 no. We, we've embraced the fulfillment of all those shadows, the reality of all those shadows, which is Christ. So let's stand together. Give us a love, Lord, for your word. i convinced that if we had a greater love for your word, our love for you would increase as well. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. If there's any among us that have not placed their faith in you, Lord, I pray that you'd open their heart even now to at least start asking questions and then do their due diligence to open up a Bible and start reading one of the gospel accounts and see what you speak to their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.